welcome back to Us Without Them. Y'all ready to dance? I'm ready to dance. I'm ready to dance. Uh, I don't know about you. Uh, we're talking about Tie Me Up, Untie Me today, the third track on Catch For Us The Foxes. And it's a funky one out of the gate. You get this nice little guitar lick that, again, I mean, I feel like we say this a lot on a lot of these tracks. We're like, yeah. do they do that on any other song? Um, right? <laughs> I feel like we have said that every episode. <laughs> do they do that? Um, but but seriously, do they do a funky little guitar lick like this at the beginning yeah. of any other song? I don't think That's so. Great. That's a great question. Well, we'll put a pin in it and then yeah, and, yeah. Uh, we'll track look it. for it. We'll look for they it. haven't yet. I'll, yeah, I'll, yeah, right. I'll agree right. with you there. Um, I I want to say uh, because there's always something happening before the first thing happens. Of yeah. course, I always jump to the second thing <laughs> <laughs> before that. Before that funky little guitar riff, there's a really queasy sound, especially the just mm. the very first moment. There's something in the lower register that is really uncomfortable sounding, mm. and then yeah. it kind of moves into this higher space, but still, like it doesn't quite center on a pitch. It's kind of oscillating up and down a little bit. Yeah. So because we just had two tracks that have a kind of a a pure tone feedback sound that launches us right into the beginning of it. Yeah. This is uh, is reminiscent of the last two songs, but also a variation on that theme, how to structure the opening. Yeah. So yeah. because now it's not clear that the song is gonna land someplace. It's just uncomfortable. And then and then then it's so surprising that you get Yes. You know, this guitar to come in. Now, Ricky is playing uh, like a nice, like danceable beat on top of this queasy guitar noise that's yes. getting us set up. And then the clear guitar riff comes in and sort of sides with the drums and, and pushes to the background someplace. It's uncomfortable feeling that we started with. Yeah. Do you have anything else to say about, about the music, Steven? About that guitar riff? Or... Well, it's fun I'm... to play. Sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. I can imagine. To pick up a guitar and try. It's, yeah, it's, it's a really fun little bit to play. Yeah, that makes sense. It, well, and, you know, we've kind of talked about this kind of maritime feel a lot of a lot of their songs. And that queasiness into the queasiness with the fantastic danceable beat into the nice clean riff to me feels a little bit kind of drunken. Like you're kind of swaying on, on mm -hmm. the deck of a boat in a sense. Yeah. And you're, you can't quite get your footing, but you can, you know, you're, you're staying yeah. on beat, but not quite. It, it's, it's, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. In, in every, in every major scale and in every natural minor scale, there are two half steps in a major scale. It's between the third and the fourth scale degree. And then in from the seventh to the eighth, um, in a minor scale, it's between the second and third scale degree, and then the fifth and the sixth. That just sounds like bland technical jargon right now. But I mentioned earlier in the season that I'm what I'm kind of thinking of musically in this album is tracking the half steps. Where do they show up? Because we don't get clear leading tone seven up to one, like uh, up to the higher octave. We don't get those clear harmonic resolutions because this whole album is based on these natural minors where you have a flat seven up to the one. Just bear with me if none of that registered in your mind, dear listener. <laughs> but I just want to point out 
that in this song, structurally, this opening guitar riff uh, is playing around with a half step in the key of E minor between G and F sharp. So it's it's like the second and third scale degree of this key. So just, just put a note there that that's the half step that the song opens with, is the one between two and three. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's all. So should we jump into the first verse then? I was looking at the leaves, climbing to the tops of the trees, but you were nowhere. than I thought. Again, beautiful imagery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, the just the depth of the metaphors, as we've said, as we said at the very beginning, you know, the, the poetry, the poetic language in A to B life is, is very nice. But this is another level. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's yes. just, it's another level. Um, so what do we think is going on here? I was looking at the leaves climbing to the tops of the trees, but you were nowhere to be found. Who is he looking for? Well, you you told us your reading last time. I did time, last time. Uh, yes, that's which, true. Which <laughs> I agree with. I, I think that's a, a straightforward and and good reading. Which is you is is God or Christ? Yeah, yeah. I th- I think any time that you can see a continuity from the last line of one song into the beginning of the next one, it's really satisfying. Yeah. Yes, we don't know that they were ever written to to fall back to back. But they were chosen for that order before the album was released. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and clearly, like, the sonic texture was intentional, flowing from one song to another. So it's reasonable to guess that they had written these songs. They knew how they began and ended and had this intentional sequence worked out before they ever went into the studio. But it could be that with Brad Wood, they worked all the details out later. Yeah, sure. Could be. Yeah. All that yeah. said, the last line of January 1979 was, I heard somewhere there was a cure for useless eyes. And that somewhere is a searching word. Yeah, it's not. Yes. I heard yep, right yep, around yep, here, yep, or I yep. heard right in this place, there was a cure for useless eyes. Yep, so if somewhere. you imagine now he's yeah. going searching for that cure, yes, yep. mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. where we begin yep. this song. Yeah, there's a quest now, in a sense. Yep. Yeah, yeah, and and I just you know this is something I mentioned in the last episode. It's something that we talked about in the first season. Uh, I can't remember which episode it was exactly, but um, I I talked about this distinction in theology between natural revelation and what's called special revelation, right? I Which think is, that was the ghost. Okay. Yeah. So very early on then in the first season, but essentially the, what that distinction refers to is the idea of, you know, where knowledge of God comes from in some Protestant traditions, particularly Calvinism, Calvinist related derived traditions. Um, the only location of knowledge of, of God, of 
is from the word of God itself, right? And we, I know we often hear that, you know, uh, or we talk about the Bible or hear the Bible spoken of as, quote, the word of God, because literally um, it, you know, it is in the tradition understood to be the, the words of God sort of inspired to human hands and written by, down by, by humans. Yeah, um, I even used that phrase last episode. Right. Yes, right. yes, yes. Right. Um, but in, in the context of special revelation, word of God refers specifically to Jesus, yeah. right? As the logos, uh, logos being the Greek word that, that means, literally means word, right? The beginning of the gospel of John is in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God, the word being Jesus Christ, because Jesus's words, right, in the gospel, the words that he spoke were literally the words of God, because Jesus was God. And so the idea is that um, knowledge of salvation, knowledge of who God is, can only come through that special revelation of Christ. In other older, actually, Christian traditions, in Catholicism, in Eastern Orthodox Christianity, um, there's a notion of uh, natural revelation. And in natural revelation, um, knowledge of God can come from the natural world, right? So you can uh, look at creation and from that derive sort of knowledge of who God is, right? In Catholicism, the world is full of these signposts, I I think, as I said last time, that point us in the direction of God. And so it's interesting that he's in the beginning here, if we're going to read this as God, in these first two um, stanzas, he's looking for that, right? He's trying to find that signpost, right? And he's going to the tops of the trees. He's going to the highest heights, right? I, that's how I understand this idea of tops of the trees, right? He's going to the highest of heights, the grandest you know, things yes. you, you could even imagine tops of mountains or something like that. Yeah. But tree, but trees works better as a contrast to the next stanza, which is uh, that beneath all of the green, right. You were buried like a little seed You're among right. the roots and underground. So, and this is an idea that's going to be carried out throughout this song, right. That God is um, so hard to find for him right now mm-hmm. that he, he is, uh, so easy to miss. And it's also worth noting, right, comparing this back to January 1979 yep. with that image of being seven stories up and being unable to see, right, the creatures and yeah. their covert conversations and and so on, right? There's like a kind of parallel imagery here, right, that he's, yeah. that God is also, is hiding Definitely. like those creatures down uh, the passersby, right? Well, and think yeah. all the way back to um, the French verse in Bullet to Binary. Yes. He looks up to the hills. He looks to the mountains. It it was Bullet to Binary where yes, you talked about that. Yes, that is where we had that. Because yes, we talked right? about Israel. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Yep, 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 yep. And, and, and yet he didn't find his help when he looked up yes. to the mountain. And so right. there's something very um, tangible and up close and and believable about the loftiest place he can imagine being the top of a tree, because you can walk up to a tree and touch it and just climb the tree right there. It's he's not looking up into the sky and looking for God up there. He's not looking to the top of the mountain. He's just, this the closest thing at hand that is tall. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right, right, yeah, right. True. Um, yeah. And, and he's trying to get close to it in a way that from the seventh floor balcony, 
someone looking from that vantage point can't see the details of what's going on. He's getting to the tops of the trees, not just to be lofty, but to be close. He's looking at leaves. That's a very up-in-your-face image. Yeah. Which it conjures to me the the kind of cliche, you know, the can't see the forest for the trees. Well, this is even more zoomed in. I can't. It's like you can't see I'm, the tree I'm, for the leaves. You can't see the tree for the leaves. Exactly. <laughs> Which, as our resident Tolkien guy, I have to bring up Leaf by Niggle. Please do here. Um, which is one of Tolkien's uh, best allegories. He only wrote two or three, even though he was a self-proclaimed hater of allegories. Um, And I won't spoil what the kind of decoded allegory is for Leaf by Niggle because I'm still trying to figure it out myself as a non-religious person coming to this. It's, It's not as obvious to me, but it is about a man who's an artist. He's not a very successful artist at all. Uh, who spends an awful lot of time on paintings, specifically one painting of a tree in a scene, and he spends an excruciating amount of time on the leaves in this painting. And so, of course, that's immediately where my nerd brain goes, looking at this, is the over-focus on the leaves. And then at the end, when he's gone through all of this kind of trials and tribulations and and working with his his neighbor, whose name is Parrish, very on the nose professor uh, with that one because Parrish is all about even begrudgingly helping his neighbor to, you know mm. he, he's doing things very he's a he's a common parishioner I'll do the thing for my neighbor because that's what I'm supposed to do it's what my my pastor or what have you told me to do mm. as the as yeah. the good book said but they yeah. both go through essentially a purgatorial cleansing in the Catholic tradition, when when Catholics still believed in purgatory, in that they, they have to work, they go to a workhouse, yeah, literally to work through, kind of preparing themselves for this this next place, and then it's this beautiful moment where the tree that Niggle was painting turns out to be real and be in this place that so he made that, but Parrish made these other pieces, and so there's this beautiful kind of closing all things together there. And I, I see that in these first two stanzas of verse one, mm-hmm. with the looking at the leaves, climbing to the tops of the trees, and then beneath all the green, buried like a little seed among the roots and underground. There's this really nice kind of symmetry there with this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I just, I, I also want to, um, you know, with, at the risk of jumping too far ahead yeah, into sure. Brother Sister, we've mentioned a couple times the spider songs. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just want to kind of draw a quick contrast or, or put a pin in something, right? So the leaves here are green, right? Mm. Um, they are alive. They, uh, you know, when you're looking at green leaves, like if you, if you live in a place that has seasons, I grew up in a place that did not have seasons. Well, we had two seasons, hot and not as hot. Right. Right. Um, <laughs> but now having lived for a while in a place that has seasons, right, when it's summer, it, you kind of get this sense almost like, at least for me, when the when all the leaves are fully green and f- all the trees are fully in bloom, it's hard to remember what it looks like in the winter. You're yeah. like, wow, really? Yes. All these leaves are going to be gone at some point? Um, and it's when, you know, 
when it, it fe- in other words, it feels like it's never going to change, right? Mm-hmm. And in a sense, he, I think Aaron is still at this point spiritually where he's looking for the kind of traditional understanding of God in a way, right? The, the unchanging, you know, yes. um, immutable notion of God. Yeah. Um, but in the spider songs, the leaves are, are changing colors, right? Yes. Yellow, yellow leaf, orange leaf, brown leaf, dead leaf. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, yeah, I just want to, I, I don't want to dive too much into like reading those songs right now. No, I just want to pin though. that right now, right. Yeah. That, that, Something changes in Brother Sister where because those in those songs where he's coming to this understanding of of natural theology. Here he doesn't seem to be getting it. He's looking for God in the leaves, and he's right. not seeing God in the leaves. Yeah. But in the next album, he will yeah. see God in the leaves. Yes. And the interesting thing about the seed, right? So those leaves are changing, right? When you see the, the leaves changing colors, you suddenly realize that, oh no, the leaves don't stay green forever. Right. Right. There is a cycle here. There's a process right. that things are changing. And but a seed changes too, right? Yes. And to be buried like a little seed, right? The seed has not reached its full potential yet. And I, I'm not saying that like Aaron is like a process theologian or an open theist or something like that and believes <laughs> that God changes like over time. But there is, I think there is something, there's something there, right? In these, yeah. in these contrasting uh, images. Absolutely. And the, the last, it's another Tolkien reference, but this is a brief one. If you've ever read The Hobbit, in the chapter Flies and Spiders, when Bilbo is sent up a mighty oak tree to try to get a view right. throughout Mirkwood. And I, I actually think that's a really nice parallel here because he they happen to be in a in a shallow valley, so it looks from his perspective, the trees go on and on, but that's because he's in a bowl and he can't see the edges of the bowl of mm, that this mm. valley is the, mm-hmm. the bowl being the valley. So He's climbed, you put in all this effort looking for something, and then you literally can't see it because of the perspective you're, you're at mm-hmm. currently. And it's just so lovely. Yeah. yeah. The, the other thing I'll say, that kind of circular, you know, cycle of life that you're talking about, Joel, the band very clearly validates that with the promotional stuff for the farewell tour. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. For, you know, every, they, for, I think it was every day or every week, for seven weeks, they released a kind of re- retooling of some of the lyric or some of the music of the last track of each album. Right. And it had an image of planting of a seed, a tree growing up, the tree being cut down, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Right. I mean, and there's so many, obviously, I'm sure people are thinking like, oh, yeah, what about like a tree cut down, like, you know, grows up again and the image from Job yep. and, yep. Um, you know, we could talk about circles, all circles presuppose Gosh, and the circle yes. of the compass and things. I mean, all, yeah, all yep. of these images can be tied together in a million different ways. They sure can. Ways. They sure can. Yeah. But right here, what seems to be the focal point is that in this search for God, where he finds him is not in the obvious lofty place at the highest right. point exactly. that he can imagine. Yes. But in a lowly place in the dirt. Beneath yep. all the green, beneath yes. this this really vibrant color that you can look up and see everywhere, now in this unremarkable brown, dirty place on the ground, there's something very, very small 
Yeah, mm-hmm. in the in the leaf mold, as they call it. You know, the decomposing yeah. leaves, exactly. Yeah. Okay, so we got to talk about this yes. third stanza. What the heck is going on here? I, know. I was licking at the leaves, yeah. I, but I was just... in short sleeves. Yeah, go ahead. I know exactly what's going on here. Okay. And I'm not going to tell you until the next episode. What? Come on. Oh, because the track is Leaf. The track is Leaf. It has something to do with that. All I'm going to say here is I'm just going to punt that this line is directly tied to the song Leaf. And and all will be clear when we get to that song. That's not fair because I said exactly what I was talking about in future <laughs> songs. I didn't say we got to wait till we get to Yellow Spider to, to talk about but it's, yeah, the, we'll just, the leaves. Uh, <laughs> we'll just stop recording and Stephen okay. can tell us off air. All right, so, yeah, so basically what Stephen wants to do here is have me and Nick uh, tr- speculate as to what licking at the leaves means so that in the next episode he can come back and say, you guys were fools. Yes. <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm totally game to do that because I think we, we're qualified enough to parse these lyrics on our own. But um, Okay, well, so, yeah. I mean, I, I think that one, I, I, I'm still, I'm not sure what licking at the leaves means, but... The fact that uh, the next two lines, I was in short sleeves and you were like some sickness that I caught, yeah. to me is a reference to Poison Oak or Poison Ivy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? That's exactly where I'm going. And so I read, I was looking at the leaves as an attempt to know something in its totality. So you can't just look at it. You can't just feel oh, he's it. He's tasting it's, it. He's tasting it. Mm, yeah. Okay. Which, yeah. I mean, if you're out in the woods and no one taught you leaves of three, Fear me, oh God. Like, you might be like, hmm, God this, help this you. Looks, yeah, I'm so sorry. Uh, <laughs> two weeks later, and you can't breathe, yeah. and you're oh, stuck awful. in bed like some sickness that you caught. Honestly, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, well, okay. So, I mean, we were talking obviously in the first two stanzas. The you is God, right? He's searching mm-hmm. for God, and now God, you because he was. Yeah. Oh, okay. Now it's coming to me. I, mm-hmm. I have a thought, and I'm I'm <laughs> I'm nervous to say it because do it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you, I mean your point, Nick, about to know something, you have to really like you know every aspect of, of it, including its taste, right? Yeah. And so he was trying to know God as deeply as he could, and again, we see this, I think, in A to B life, where he really thought that he knew. Uh, you know, that he had this kind of very profound, deep understanding of his own religious tradition. Um, and then it turns out, right, that doing so, that, that doing that, having that confidence, trying, you know, thinking that he was knowing God deeply turned out to be this kind of sickness. And I think that, um, you know, for anyone else listening who's ever, uh, who's gone to seminary before, um, you know, a lot of seminarians or, or people who, who go to seminary will warn prospective seminarians that like, hey, seminary is not a place where you get your questions answered. It's where your answers get questioned. Um, you yeah. hear things in seminary that you're like, well, hold on a second. That's not what my pastor taught me, right? Yeah. You you are hearing things from biblical scholars and theologians and, and so forth. You're learning about the history of the tradition um, and you realize that you're your tiny, narrow 
understanding of Christianity is just that. It was tiny and narrow. When you thought that it was, or you had this feeling that it was the all-encompassing in some way. Yes. And then you realize like, oh, no, 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 no. There's all these different ways of thinking about. I remember, just quick aside, my very first class, I went to Fuller Seminary in, in Pasadena, which is a large evangelical seminary. My very first class was with um, a philosopher named Nancy Murphy, who is famous for not believing in the existence of the soul, right? Which, mm. as a Christian, for like kind of orthodox Christians, that's... That's pretty troubling. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, and her philosophy of religion class is basically all about that. <laughs> the How the soul like doesn't exist and why that's okay, like as a Christian. Uh, you know, I was coming into seminary from a secular MA program in English literature. So I'd read a ton of like philosophy and all sorts of, of things that were sort of fringe, you know, philosophy of religion. And so I, I was not, I was in a place where like that did not phase me at all. I thought it was interesting and cool. Um, and so she made me a, a like a discussion group leader. Um, and I felt like I was a therapist leading those discussion <laughs> groups because there were people, you know, I mean, some some of the students were like 23. They had just come out of their undergrad. Um, you know, I was a little bit older. I was 26, 27, something like that. You know, but they were like, they had just come from their Christian university to, to Fuller. And they're like, what is happening right now? Like, this is not what I signed up for. For yeah. this person to, uh, in a place of authority, like to be challenging the notion of the soul, the existence of the soul. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, it just was like wild to her. Um, and, and Nancy Murphy wasn't the only person. I mean, Joel Green, who's a New Testament scholar, who I think is like a provost of the School of Theology now, he also doesn't believe in the existence of the soul. There's someone in the School of Psychology who also doesn't believe in the existence of the soul. Like, wow. it was a whole thing at Fuller. And, yeah, it was like really troubling. And so like that's what I think of when I think about this this reading that like literally just came to me <laughs> as no, we I, were talking about this. But it's like that. It's like you you get way more than you bargained for when you start to dive into the mysteries of the divine, in a sense. Yeah. So I think you can read the you were like some sickness that I caught as talking about getting more than you bargained for on the search for God. And I'll leave the licking of the leaves for later. But <laughs> okay, why well, um, I, I ought to? <laughs> <laughs> but um, but I just want to I just want to ask: Does it make any sense to either of you to take the "you" and "you" were like some sickness that I caught as either um, his now departed girlfriend, who was the subject of A to B mm. life, Amanda, or yeah, yeah Amanda? Or as uh, as the church, his faith community that that we're mm. sort of tracking, maybe is like this is the the separation. I, I to be honest, the 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 faith community it was one of my kind of sub readings as I was thinking about this song after yeah. our overview conversation, you know, and and reading through torches together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I see that. Yeah. I, yeah, definitely. I think it could be. I, yeah, I think that that makes sense because it still it still fits with the looking at the leaves. If if that is 
him tasting, yeah. right, trying to get as much knowledge about God as he can. I mean, again, I can tell you as someone <laughs> who has a PhD in religion and and was trying to be part of an evangelical church community at the same time, right, mm. licking at the leaves, exploring all there is to know, all the, you know, as much as I could about what has been written and thought about with regard to God. Um, and studying the nature of religion and thinking about those kinds of really hard questions, it was like I was a a sick person. Yeah. I mean, we talked about this last time, right? There were people in my church community who I knew were like a kind, like would kind of avoid me a little bit. Like they didn't want to. They they were like unsure about me. Yeah. Like if yeah seemed like they maybe thought I was like unsafe somehow mm-hmm. on some mm. on some level um and i know i mean uh one time someone asked me i we've been going to the church for a few years at this point and someone asked me like hey are do you have a degree from a seminary weren't you a pastor at one point like how come they never ask you to preach and i just laughed because i was like they're never going to ask me to preach they <laughs> yeah. are afraid of what i'm going to say yeah. um they you know they just it's not something that they're going to do i would be happy to do it. I, I can do it. Uh, you know, but yeah, I know that I am not the kind of theologian. I am not the kind of doctoral student in religion that they want preaching, right? They want someone from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, you know, up the road in Chicago or, or some other, or Moody even, right. To Bible Institute to, to preach. They don't want a PhD student from Northwestern in the secular religion department to preach a sermon, right? So, yeah, it's – I think that that definitely fits. That definitely makes sense, too, to read it as as he is trying to explore all these facets of divinity because also we have to remember his own upbringing, right? And I could very easily see – if he's reading Rumi and also involved in an evangelical church community, I could definitely see people raising an eyebrow at that and thinking that there's something wrong with him. Especially to... at the time that he was reading. Yeah, Rumi. yes, yeah. yes. It's It's worth noting here, and maybe this will come up again, that the the point of entry that Aaron had to Rumi, which is the same that most folks in America do, is the edition put out by Coleman Barks, yeah. who mm-hmm. uh, is sort of reinterpreting Rumi's poems from yes. other English language <laughs> translations from the Victorian oh, era. Yeah, who doesn't read Farsi himself, and so and so um, there was an article. Right. <laughs> Maybe we can link to it if, if we can find it. That came out not too long ago, where there was somebody sort of critiquing people people obsessing over Coleman Barks's interpretations of Rumi because it de-Islamicizes these poems. It does, yes. yeah, it absolutely does. Um, yeah, but also Coleman Barks got involved translating or reinterpreting or whatever verb you want to use Rumi's poetry with a direct connection to. Bawa Muhayyadeen, this guy who Aaron and Mike's mm. parents studied yeah. under. Like, 
There's like a close yeah. family connection to Coleman Barks and his his renderings of Rumi. Oh, it's not just a distant author someplace. Okay. Really? So he would have grown up, you know, experiencing these poems from somebody who was connected to his parents' own faith community. Yeah. Mm. Interesting. And so, so then now he's put in this position where he's doubly suspect because with this Christian group that he's with, who is this guy with these parents that go to this Islamic center across town who's reading Rumi? What is he doing here with us? And at the same time, his parents have got to be thinking, what are you doing going to that church? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. Right. Right. Totally. Yeah, so I mean, and I think that the only reason I would say it's the you is not Amanda or the Amanda character yeah. is because of the next stanza. And my sweetheart moved away. Right. Swept off like garbage in the alleyway, and I need more grace than I thought. Yeah. Yeah, the the shift in, in kind of pronoun usage there yeah. is is too hard not yeah. to I agree with you. Yeah, so so we can we can line this up then with like in the last song, I was floating in a peaceful sea rescued by a sinking ship, right? I was doing okay, and I was rescued by this thing that ended up dragging me further down. Same way yeah, here. Right. He you know, you speaking to his faith community, perhaps, you were like some sickness that I caught. And then as a result of that, my sweetheart moved away. Like <laughs> Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, I also just yeah. just to, to 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 call back to the thing about short sleeves. It sounds good as a line. It's a little bit hard to interpret, and it's especially difficult because the leaves are green. And I would never have thought of this, except Joel, you were talking about the difference between green leaves now versus as we get mm-hmm. through autumn, mm-hmm. they change colors. Yeah. We're in the middle of summer, so short sleeves should not make you get sick. Like if it's the dead of winter, sure. But it does feel like a reference back to catch your death. Um, yeah. Well, and also if you if you understand the leaves as poisonous, mm-hmm. right, as right. being poisonous to the skin, yeah. right, that all of a sudden, uh, you know, he's handling these these leaves, or he's mm. like in the brush in a way, right, searching for God. And then, uh oh, he's yeah. now covered in poison yeah, ivy. Yeah, yeah. that that right. makes total sense. Yeah. yeah, the short sleeves are a problem because of contact, not because of cold. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was going to skip to the next line, which is, I just what a nice close to the verse, mm. and I need more grace than I thought. Mm. It's mm. a that's a nice moment of self realization, like to me, fairly honest, like. Yeah. Holy crap, I real I'm now realizing I need a lot more grace than I thought I did. Yeah. Well, and especially like contrast it contrast that to all the conversations we had about A to B life where it seemed yes. like the narrator was continually caught unaware yes. of how much grace he actually needed. Yeah. Right? And when he when it hit him, it hit him like a ton of bricks. Yes. Right. Um and here I think it still is it's it, I mean, certainly it's troubling to him, yeah. right? The, the, the contemplation of suicide. And so like, but it's more of, um, it's not so shocking or, or something, right? Yep. It, it's, um, it's more of like a melancholy, like, Ooh, I need more grace than I thought. Yeah. Like, yeah. Well, you know. and I think we can even put a finer point on it that the grace that he needs is because of a specific incident, not just because his life in general needs yeah. needs it. Because okay. the lines that precede right. it, 
Okay, he's talking to his church. You were like some sickness that I caught. My sweetheart moved away, swept off like garbage in the alleyway. It's like, like I am culpable with you all, the sickness that I caught, for doing this to mm-hmm. her. Yes. That she was yes. swept yeah. off like yeah. garbage. And now, yep. oh my God, what have I done? I need yeah. more grace than I thought. That reading makes it just so powerful. It sure right? does. Because, I mean, I know for for folks who are not practicing Christians or those who, you know, again, feel, you know, disaffected by the church, like, it probably feels so rare to hear a Christian, like, acknowledge this kind of failing. Yes. Right? And say, like, I messed up so bad and i desperate i need grace yeah. right but, but, in, in a in a sort of non-pious non like yes. like it's a very real authentic sort of recognition here well and correct me if i'm wrong but grace in in its essence is something given to those who don't deserve it you know we we, yeah. we yes. in secular society think of if you have not done something to harm other people, then you deserve things because you, you've, mm-hmm. you've done good, but kind of flip that on, on its end did the Christian perception, like, no, no, no. The people who need the most grace are the people who are the most failing because they kind of need help getting back on the path. Right. Well, so it's, uh, I mean, in the Protestant tradition, everybody has like, no one can do anything right. that warrants, salvation from God. Like there's an utter gulf between us and God and there's nothing you can do, right? There's no good, no amount of good that you can do in the Protestant tradition, right? Um, you, It's just the grace of God right. that is given to you as a gift that you accept through your faith in Jesus Christ, right? right. So, it, I mean, the Catholic tradition also has this notion of accepting the the gift of grace from God. But once you accept that, that's step one. And then your soul is open to receiving the merit of God's grace uh, through your actions. Yeah. That's where acts come in. Yeah. exactly. Yeah. Good, good works, penance, you know, confession, taking the mass and so forth. But, um, but yeah, I think that certainly in the Protestant tradition, like there, yeah, there's this notion that like, no, none of us are good enough. (laughs) Right. right. And it doesn't even matter, like, if you are, if you do good things, like, you know, none of us are ultimately good enough. That's, yeah. Yeah. And I yeah. think as a, as a framework for understanding one's plight as a human being, that can be beautiful and healthy and useful. Mm-hmm. But like anything else, it can also be yes. weaponized. <laughs> yep. Yes. <laughs> yep. And cheapened. Um, yes. To the yes. way that yes. just Absolutely. using that as a whole blanket statement about all of humanity and ignoring that you yourself are in that position right. for actual things right. you have actually done. Yes. Yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah. 
There's a big difference. Oh, well, yeah. and I think that's where a lot of people get into trouble is they understand these things in the abstract, right? Like, there's nothing I can do except 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 accepting the grace <laughs> of God. Yeah. So therefore, who the hell cares about what I do? Yeah. Um, you know, we've seen that <laughs> song and dance before. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's also where the mental health component com- comes into play is like, there's literally no ledge for you to grab a hold of to feel like you d- are deserving of anything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because there's nothing you can do. So um, that that's another. I, I wasn't yeah. planning to to pull in Tolstoy at this moment, but I just have to say something because we're, <laughs> we're hung up in this concept of, of grace in a general sense versus in a specific sense. Of course, Tolstoy is Russian. He's coming from an Orthodox perspective. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. and there's this moment in his confession, which again is, I'm saying the a, a guiding light of this album, not the only one, but but I think a significant influence, where he comes to realize that he's been spending years trying to figure out why life is evil and meaningless, and this moment of revelation comes to him where he realizes, I've just been universalizing my own experience my life is evil and it is meaningless, but that doesn't mean that life in general for all people is. Wow. Okay. Mm. I have cultivated a life that, that now I'm asking all these questions about, about universal human experience that are really just about me and my experience. And of course the answers that I'm getting don't fit for everybody because they only apply to me in my situation. So Anyway, that seems relevant here. I don't have a quote pulled up for that, but no, it it it, it absolutely does. That's that universe universalization is exactly what we're talking about. The realization it goes back to what you were talking about a few minutes ago, Joel. Like, oh, there's all these other pers- perspectives. Yeah, mm-hmm. no yeah. one perspective is. It's the kaleidoscope of all of them that creates mm-hmm. something close to the truth. Even that isn't the truth. Yeah. But yep. Yep. Oh man. Well, let's get into this pre-chorus. I need more grace than I thought. What a great kind of the the cadence of that whole pre-chorus is just so fascinating mm-hmm. to me. Yeah, it's great and it's, it's. I think that Aaron's delivery in uh, of it is such a great example of like what Aaron Weiss like sounds like. Like it's sort of paradigmatic. Like yes, um, it's just really really good. And it's also just lyrically, it's so interesting. Like you know, if we're reading the pre the verse as you know his church community being like this sickness that he caught, mm-hmm. right? And then in the pre-chorus. He's appealing, right, to, again, if we were to read this, the brother as uh, not Mike, but... I mean, he's standing right over there. <laughs> Why yeah, couldn't right. he be That's about true. Mike? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he's not, yeah, they're not far away. Exactly. Um, but, uh, but yeah, you know, as, as a member of, you know, his, maybe his, like, accountability partner or something right. like that, you know, uh, I don't know if the Bruderhof had, uh, you know, small groups and accountability partners, but um, uh, doesn't really strike me as that kind of community. But still, uh, you know, if he's, talking if the brother is his brother in Christ it's really it's interesting that he's like 
you're the sickness that I caught, but like, I'm begging you. Mm-hmm. Like, help me. I mean, he doesn't say help me here. He just says, I'm far. I'm far away. I'm far away from everything. I'm far away from everything good. Yeah. Um, but that to me sounds like a kind of a cry for help. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. he's, he's, uh, the church community is supposed to be this safe place where he can be honest and say, please, brother, I'm far. Yeah. Like I'm struggling. I'm far away from everything. Yeah. Yes. yes. I have a really personal experience with this section of the song. Mm. I didn't see them perform at all in the A to B life promotional cycle. Um, I listened to that album and then I listened to catch Fresh the foxes when it came out and it rocked my world. I mean, there's so, so many lines on this record that, that spoke so clearly and directly in a way that nobody else was able to. And this line really struck me. I remember. And, and I wrote Aaron a letter I don't know if either of you ever did this. I'm sure I'm one mm. of thousands that got out pen and paper. And I just, I needed to basically say thank you. And I don't remember the contents of the letter at this point. It's been a long time. But I, when, I, when they came through somewhere nearby me uh, on tour to, to promote Catch Rest the Foxes, I remember coming up to the merch table before the show. Aaron wasn't there. And now it's been so long. I don't remember if Mike Almquist was was running their table back in 2004, 2005. Sure. Um, but whoever was there. You know, actually, let me think about this for a second. I think it was Greg Jahanian. I think he had just joined the band. Dan had mm. departed after they recorded. Greg started touring with him and he's in the video for Paper Hanger. So he was around for the Catch Rest the Foxes stuff. And I'm I'm this is coming back as I'm saying it out loud. I think I handed this paper letter that I had folded up to Greg and just asked, Hey, could you please get this to Aaron? And this is before the show started. And the, and some, there's something about this line that really struck me that, um, the very admission of him being far away from everything good. Yeah. Is what made him trustworthy that this was somebody that maybe actually had some goodness in him that was worth emulating or seeking yeah. out because I yeah. was around people yeah. that would never say anything like this. Exactly. Right. Right. Um, and so then I remember standing in the crowd that night and this, I'm sure this is all projection and fantasy because there's no way. Let me just say my experience and then I'll critique it. I remember when they played <laughs> tie me up on Timey, I was standing in the crowd and I felt like when he got to this moment in the song, he just looked me directly in the eye and and was saying this to me, brother, I'm far away from everything good. Like, do not project that onto me that now I have some sort of, you know, capacity to mm. improve your life. I'm serious about this. No, there's nothing good to yeah. look for here. Of course, for that to wow. have happened, you know, okay, Greg would have had to have like got this note to him, handed it to him, said, okay, read this letter before the show starts. I'm going to point this guy out to you in the crowd. Right. And like, right, I, I do right, not right. think any of that happened. I'm not sure he, he ever even <laughs> read it, but um, but to me, it felt very significant to not just take this as like a statement that was interesting and worth noting, but like I could, I could read myself as the brother in this statement Yes, and remember yeah. to not put something on him that he doesn't deserve here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Man. And he'll freely admit that to this day, yeah. like 
<laughs> uh, in uh, in the Carry the Fire podcast interview that was from 2020 or 2019, I can't remember now, but uh, he says he said something to the effect of like, man, I hope people aren't just listening to me to get all of their you know spiritual guidance. Like, yeah. that's not <laughs> that's not a great idea. And uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, should we get into this chorus? She's like a like a hot cloth on a fevered head and like a needle she leads me while i follow like thread tie me up untie me all this wishing i was dead is getting old it's getting old it goes on but it's old so i think you know the the first thing that kind of jumps out at me is the connection between the fevered head and the sickness, sickness yeah right that he yeah. caught yeah um and so, I, I mean, the she, I think, are, are we in agreement that that is Amanda, the her being like a hot cloth? But, but I mean, obviously, a hot cloth on a fevered head is a, a bad idea. Yes. You know, that you put a, a cool compress on, on a fevered head. Mm-hmm. Um, so she being like a hot cloth on a fevered head means that somehow she is making the sickness worse. Right. Just in that line, Mm -hmm. obviously. I mean, yeah. Um, Right. Hmm. But I'm I'm just curious. Uh, Yeah, I mean, it's... For a song that so far has been about the search for God and this kind of worry about being far away, right? About being alienated, maybe feeling alienated, from the um, from the community, um, being angry or, or upset or feeling guilty about what happened to his sweetheart, right? Now the chorus right begins with this line: "She's like a hot cloth on a fevered head." It's just it's interesting to me that 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 all of a sudden, right, the chorus gets this focus in on the she yeah. on this she character yeah. that we have not really seen. Up until this point, yeah, right, right in the record, yep. um, it almost feels out of place because of that, yep. right? So I think I think you, if you want to read it as being his sweetheart, because we already had that mm-hmm. line just recently, you sure. can make some sense of it that way. Um, that okay, he's fevered, and like the memory of her is is making this experience of feeling sick within this community even worse, and then she's mm-hmm. been swept off like garbage in the alleyway. So now he's wanting to follow her out. You know, if this whole thing is like, if the, if A to B life was about this breakup with an individual person, and now this album is about a breakup with this church, then right. he's following her out the door, basically, after she's been swept off. That makes sense so far. Then the tie me up and tie me, it, then it gets a little bit murky if you go on from there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Yeah. I've only, always listened to this as, as this being an individual person and probably the same as the sweetheart because we have no other data to go on really like for who she mm-hmm. would be but it's coming right. to me right now we could also listen to this like she is the bride of christ right i mean the church is personified church. as an individual mm-hmm. she yeah historically okay and so mm-hmm. then then you get it just bounces out the image of brother as an individual within the church and she is the church in general 
man, I like that. Yeah, that could that could definitely work. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting because I think tie me up on tie me really has to be understood in the context of the last chorus, where instead of saying tie me up on tie me, he says, "Didn't you untie me, Lord?" Yeah. Yeah. Right. Mm Yeah. Yeah. Let me just say here as a, as a plea uh, for anyone listening who can resolve this puzzle in my head, the phrase tie me up (laughs) untie me, which is both a line in the chorus and also the title of the song. I am so sure is from something. It's a reference to a fable or a parable or an example or like a folk tale like there's some story where somebody begs to be tied up and then untied again back and forth. And I've been racking my brain for weeks and I can't think of what it is. Well, so the, th- this, this is probably not, this is probably not it, but there is an interesting, uh, a kind of parallel in a way uh, in the, in the gospels. And I'm not going to remember the exact reference, but it's, uh, a person who, who the only line I can I can remember from the actual story I can't remember the details of the story, but the the main the 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 person in the story says I believe to Jesus I believe help my unbelief right and it mm. it's not I don't think it, that this is saying the same thing necessarily um, but there is this kind of similar like there's a similar cadence mm-hmm. tie me up untie me I believe help my unbelief. Right. right. Um, and there's a a similar kind of like um there's a parallelism. Yeah. Right. Of these opposites being like connected uh together. So that always kind of popped in has popped into my yeah. head for for a little while, uh hearing yeah. these this line. The other thing from the gospels that comes to mind, um, and this is not premeditated, it's just as we're sitting here, I'm thinking, you know, Jesus says, uh, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on mm. earth will be loosed in heaven. And binding and loosing is is a weird way that we don't talk now, but literally the right. action being described, you could say, whatever you tie up on earth will be tied up in heaven, whatever you untie on earth will be untied in heaven. Right. That there's this mm-hmm. this parallel between what's happening in our plane of existence and in God's space somewhere that mm-hmm. may be at play here and what he's trying to do with these lines. Um, but if you're picturing yeah. the hot cloth on the fevered head as the church making this sickness even worse, uh, worse yeah. and and he if he's following mm-hmm. her, the church, like a needle, like, like thread following a needle, um, now you perhaps you get, you know, the eye of the needle with the camel, this other image, this famous image that Jesus gives, you know, that a camel can't mm-hmm. through the eye of a needle. Um, right. Which, you know, as an interesting side note, I, I marvel that translators have not jumped on this, but I think like the word for camel and the word for like a, like a thick rope is like one character different. And so it's entirely possible that that image of the camel <laughs> is just a scribal error. And that he, what he was trying to say is that you can't fit like a big, chunky rope through the eye of a needle, which makes way more sense right, directly. Yeah. Way more sense. Um, yeah. Way more sense. Whatever. <laughs> I, I, it's funny you say that. I think I made a reference to the religion uh, PhD, Dan uh, McLachlan on, on TikTok. And I think he talked about that very yeah. thing, like in, mm. re- in reading the, is that in the, in the Hebrew Bible or in, in Greek? That's in Greek. Um, it's Greek. Yeah. I think, although it could be one of these things where like, you have to look at the word in Aramaic and see the difference and then 
Right. And that's where you notice that it could be a scribal error. And, and I don't, I'm not a Bible scholar, but yeah, um, same. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly. Anyway, but, but then, then the language of tie me up on tie me starts to come into view that there's this like side by side with the needle pulling thread versus a rope that you would tie somebody mm-hmm. up with that were in that territory. And then you get the binding yeah. and loosing on earth and in heaven and all that, those imageries just crash into each other right here. But, right, but right, right. The, the result of all that is whatever back and forth is going on, he just comes to the end of it and says, all this wishing I was dead is getting old. And that's yep. a shocker. Like whatever is going on in the imagery before that, now we're just in a really straightforward statement. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Which I know, Joel, you've you've got a, a great thing to go off on, but the yeah. the one reference that I always think when I hear it goes on certainly conjures up in my mind a little bit of our our dear friend Kurt Vonnegut. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So it goes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Right, it goes on. Right, yeah, it's it goes on. yeah. yeah. I, I do think that that line "it goes on" is sort of a like. I know this, like, this is a normal thing. <laughs> yes. But it's, I, it's getting old. Um, sure. Yeah. So in the last episode, uh, I mentioned T.S. Eliot and the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. Um, and I do want to bring that up here, but I think that it might make more sense if I first read uh, verse three before reading the relevant section of of proof rock okay yeah go ahead i was swimming through the waves for what must have been days but could find no relief when i started sinking down i thought for certain i would drown until i saw you in the ocean underneath all the bright colored fish tell of a treasure in a dull shell such subtlety so easily missed you, my hidden pearl of pure and perfect love, and I'm the living example of 100% the opposite of this. Okay. So, as I was kind of going over these lyrics, you know, a few days ago, there was a, a I saw this striking similarity between the end of the chorus here and verse 3. And the end of the poem, The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock, okay? So if you take this, all this wishing I was dead is getting old, it's getting old, it goes on, but it's old. And then this imagery of the waves. So keep keep in mind that um, it's getting old uh, and the imagery of uh, the ocean. Okay, so here's the very end of The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock. I grow old, I grow old. I shall wear the bottoms of my trousers rolled. Shall I part my hair behind? Do I dare eat a peach? I shall wear white flannel trousers and walk upon the beach. I have heard the mermaids singing, each to each. I do not think that they will sing to me. I have seen them riding seaward on the waves, combing the white hair of the waves blown back when the wind blows the water white and black. We have lingered in the chambers of the sea by sea girls wreathed with seaweed red and brown till human voices wake us and we drown. Now, that's, uh, it's pretty emo, I gotta say. <laughs> um, especially that last line, till human voices wake us and we drown. I'm, 
I'm shocked that I cannot think of like an emo song that that references that. Um, but you can hear right a similar cadence, and I'm not saying that Aaron, you know, was drawing on the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock here in um, in this song, but um, there's some there's some interesting parallels that I kind of want to like point out here. So. The love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, the, the main, it's told in this um, kind of dramatic monologue, right? You have a first person narrator um, who is describing these, what are for T.S. Eliot, very concrete visual scenes and locations where you don't yeah. actually get a lot of that in T.S. Eliot. And uh, the poem sort of straightforwardly is about mediocrity. Right, it's about the the main character's fear uh, of his own irrelevance mm. that he will never be able to do something that artistically, right, that is going to be uh, profound or relevant. And he's so afraid of his own mediocrity that he cannot even approach this woman that he is interested in. Right. And actually the I mean the the stanza right before um uh right before what I just read kind of I, I think really sheds light on this feeling of mediocrity. He says, No, I am not Prince Hamlet, nor was meant to be. Am an attendant lord, one that will do to swell a progress, start a scene or two, advise the prince, no doubt an easy tool, deferential, glad to be of use, politic, cautious, and meticulous, full of high wow. sentence, but a bit obtuse, at times indeed, almost ridiculous, almost at times the fool. Right. So what he's saying there's like, he's no Hamlet, right? He's not the star of the show. He will never be. Right. And what is happening then at the end of the poem? right is that he's sort of he's recognizing that he is the fool he's going to grow old he's going to roll the bottoms of his trousers which is not fashionable right <laughs> in 1910 or whatever when he's <laughs> right. reading this or writing this i mean you know parting his hair behind eating a pe like all these things he's talking about like being an old an old irrelevant man um yep. and, but then this image of the mermaids riding on the waves singing to each other and not to him is this idea that like oh but maybe at the last moment there will be this spark of inspiration right right that that the mermaids singing are this kind of like artistic inspiration that that maybe like he can see it out there it's like just out mm. of reach on the ocean right and then suddenly he finds himself in the chambers of the sea Right, mm -hmm. that the mermaids have actually—I mean—and this is a, obviously a reference to like the Odyssey, yeah. right, and the sirens leading him out uh, into the into the sea, and so he's lingering in the in the chambers of the sea, like with this uh, with these muses, right, till human voices wake us and we drown. Meaning that his aspiration of being anything but a kind of mediocre nobody is totally shattered. Right. Yeah, Once right. the human voices wake him, he realizes he's underwater and he drowns. Yeah, right? right. And so the similarity, I think here, you know, there's there's a lot to say here about like the the pearl. There's that's a biblical reference, right, to the the parable of the pearl, pearl of great price, it's sometimes called, right? But yeah, I mean, it's just so striking, right, that he's swimming through the waves, right? Like the mermaids, he finds himself sinking down. He's 
certain he's going to drown. He's in the, um, he's, he's sort of, uh, uh, his attention is captured. Yeah. Right. Uh, by the, uh, by the fish and the treasure, right. That's, that's there. But I think that Aaron's worry is not mediocrity. Like his worry is not that he's not going to have influence. His, his greatest fear is, uh, I think that, uh, that, that, there's going to be meaninglessness that, um, you know, that, that in his search for this treasure, right. For the, the pearl of pure and perfect love that, uh, I I mean, this is something that I think still is, uh, left to be worked out potentially. Sure. Um, but you know, it's like, Either he's afraid that his own um, failings, right, or are going to render this search for God and meaning utterly right. meaningless, or that in the end, it's it's just it's not going to give him the thing that he's looking for, or that he's actually not going to be able to find it, right? So, I think that there, it's yeah, it's just a really interesting parallel to me. Um, it's also an interesting parallel, you know, as I mentioned in the last episode, right? Because we're, you know, Proof Rock is about uh, someone who's trying to make an impact, someone who's trying to produce art and the sure. struggle that comes with that. And I think that there's some of that also going on in, on this record as, as a whole, right? So, yeah. So that's yeah. my kind of like overview of verse three. And we could talk more specifically, you know, because I think that. Yeah, that's that. There's an interesting parallel there, but there's also, I think, more important internal parallels. Right, the swimming, uh, you know, being parallel to the being rescued by the sinking ship in January yeah, 1979, right. and and that kind of thing. So, so. I, I want to say I really appreciate that overlay of T.S. Eliot with this moment in the song. It works for me, yes. and what's really interesting about it is that. It's almost like this image of him following the voices of these mermaids out into the water yeah. is is just like more detailed subtext to the I was swimming through the waves for what must have been days. It's like, oh, yes. that's why yeah. he was swimming through the waves is because he was chasing <laughs> right. these voices. And then, but in, in T.S. Eliot, you get the line, till human voices wake us and we drown, end scene, end story, credits mm-hmm. roll, it's over. And right. so then what you get next, insert whatever media you want. I just said credits roll. So let's imagine this is a film. Now it's like we have <laughs> yeah. this like hidden scene that comes afterwards. Like you see him drop under the water. And well, of course, that's the end. When I started sinking down, it's like this. Like, wait, wait, wait. It's not over yet. <laughs> when I started sinking down, I thought for certain I would drown. Yeah, yeah. Until I, Until saw, I you saw you in the ocean, in the ocean underneath. underneath. Yeah. So, yeah. so hold that up. I'm going to give an alternate seafaring image uh and you as a listener can can take your pick or just cycle back and forth between these um this is a a, this is a parable uh from leo tolstoy's confession (laughs) okay we're definitely going to have some kind of voting competition yes on the facebook group which reference is better t.s Eliot or tolstoy Well, oh, and, and Tolkien is just yeah. the ever-present <laughs> so reference. Sorry. So sorry. <laughs> it's, 
In, so paraphrasing uh, a really profound image in this confession of Tolstoy's, after a long search of trying to figure out the meaning of life, he gives a parable of everyone being given a boat and some oars and dropped into the water at the beginning of life. You don't know how you got there, but here you find yourself all of a sudden you got oars and you got a boat and there's a strong current pulling everyone in one direction. And so he looks around him and sees all these people sitting in these boats being pulled along with the current. And then he realizes as he's starting to pay more attention that he hears the, the sound of the water getting louder and louder. And he's thinking, oh, we're about to hit some rapids and some heavy waves, possibly even go over a cliff. And all these people are just sitting here letting this happen to them are going to die. And I don't want to be a part of that. Well, I've got these oars. I better start rowing. So he starts rowing against the current. And eventually, after working really, really hard to go against the current, he makes it to the opposite shore. And then he's explicit about what these images mean to him. That he says that the opposite shore is is where you actually find God, but that this current pulling you away from that is all the weight of human religious tradition. <laughs> ah. Mm. And that you're given this opportunity of your freedom to pick up the oars and struggle against that. And if you and if you are able to maintain that, then you'll reach that opposite shore. So keep that image in mind. And now Aaron ups the ante even more. He doesn't have a boat or oars. He's just dropped into the water. I was swimming through the waves for what must have been days and could find no relief. Like he's still being pulled in this current down this way of tradition and he's trying to swim against it. Uh, And and eventually he, he can't keep up. When I started sinking down, I thought for certain I would drown. And then here's the shocker in this read of it until I saw you in the ocean underneath. He thought he had to make it to the opposite shore. And at the moment that he dies or is about to die or thinks he's going to die and drops under the water, then the one he was looking for is actually hidden down there. And and the whole thing bursts into technicolor, right? All the bright colored fish, which, you know, if we're going with this natural religion, he's looked to these green leaves as the source, perhaps. Yep. Yep. Yes. Now he's exactly. looking yeah. at the most obvious mm-hmm. thing, whereas before the obvious thing was the green leaves. Now it's all these bright fish. This really draws your eye. You're swimming in schools. It's amazing motion as well as color and light. But they're not talking about themselves. They're pointing to something else. All the bright colored fish tell of a treasure in a dull shell. It's the exact same motion as as the beginning of the song, from the obvious thing mm-hmm. up higher, yeah. these green leaves, pulling it down lower, yeah. closer to the ground, and a more lowly to the seed. Yeah. Down to the seed. Now in place of a seed, we have a pearl. It's dropped to the lowest mm-hmm. level and now hidden inside of a dull shell. And it's a, and then there's quotes around such subtlety so easily missed. So I mean, you could. It's almost like the fish are saying that. I don't know if you read that as the fish talking. Right. Yeah, um, sure. It won't be the last time we have talking animals in a Me Without You song. Nope, <laughs> certainly not. Um, and then and then this last line makes some sense. You, my hidden pearl of pure and perfect love, and I'm the living example of 100% the opposite of this. So that then functions, the end of the verse functions basically in the same way that that pre-chorus did, brother, I'm far away from everything good. It, it's another mm-hmm. way of saying the same thing in, in reverse. I just want to say that from a sound standpoint and a rhythm standpoint, um, I, I called out that line in Torches Together that sounded like a drum fill in Aaron's lyrics. 
right? Oh Our yeah. Tattered dignity demands. Sounds like yep. he's playing the drums with his mouth. Um, this is right. not, da, 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 yeah, da, da, da. this is not quite yeah, the same thing, but he, he, he pushes the lyrics into like a six, eight meter cadence for a moment against everyone else in the band playing a straight four, four time and increase this really amazing rhythmic interplay. You, my hidden pearl of pure and perfect love. And I am the living example. It's got this like three beat lilt against what's happening yes. and it, and it draws attention one, and two, focuses three, four, it. Five, and so, one, two, three. Yeah. so then, then yeah. Aaron's voice becomes like, like a counterpoint rhythmic element against what the drums are doing. And it's just, it's a really cool moment sonically. Fantastic. Yeah. 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 You know, the, so the image of the pearl, right. Mm -hmm. um, there's, so I, I mean, in, in Mormonism, there's a text by Joseph Smith called the pearl of great mm -hmm. price, which um, is probably not what Aaron is <laughs> referring to here, but that, that the title of that comes from, a parable uh, in the book of Matthew. It's Matthew chapter 13. Um, and it's a, it's actually, it's a really short, it's two verses. Okay. Um, this is the King James version. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. So, in other words, the kingdom of heaven is worth giving up everything for, right? right? What's interesting here, though, is that, um, you know, I, I think Aaron, I don't know if he was directly consciously thinking about this parable, right, when he made this comparison of, um, you know, the God being this hidden pearl that's, you know, the, the metaphor is slightly different because he, it does have this kind of natural revelation um you know aspect to it that the parable doesn't have right. right because the parable is you find a merchant who's selling the pearls for a very high price and in order to buy it you sell everything that you own right but he's not buying the pearl here he's he's finding it if anything if there's any price it's that he almost drowns well, that's right. what I was going to say yeah. is in the, in the literal reading, you, this cannot actually have happened. So the only way he got all the way down there, saw this was actually through yeah. death, you know, kind, kind of like the postmodern film, like, ah, the person died and only through death could they mm. achieve the outcome. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you could, yeah, you could read it that way. You could also, I, I mean, I think you could also read it in some ways the opposite, right? That yes. He's saying, I thought I would drown, but then I saw you and, and like discovering the pearls, what saved me, even though I am the living example of 100% the opposite of pure and perfect yeah. love, right? In other words, going back to the, I the idea more of grace, grace than I thought. It, yes, it ends with the same sentiment in mm -hmm. a way that like does. i'm not i'm not deserving of this salvation right and yet yeah right now i you, i have found yeah. the pearl right exactly i just also want to draw a quick moment of attention to the really artful use of space in this song that we begin mm. at the tops of the trees we come down to the level of the ground mm. then we go under the ground and then we come down to sea level with the waves and we go underneath the waves to the bottom of the sea to the 
just the sea yeah. floor. Yeah. We've moved yeah. the entire range that's available to human beings. If you don't count like getting in a plane and actually going up into the sky. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Or a submarine. Right. Yeah. And, and it, and it draws us even closer into like this image of God being at, at the lowest possible place. No lower right, place to right. fall, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Wow. Well, and and to your point, he's kind of recapitulating the same thought process at the end with that last line as the previous pre-chorus, and then we get an even deeper dive into that with this next pre-chorus. So this pre-chorus is one of my favorite mm. Aaron Weissisms. So talk about. Um, I guess I'll, yeah. If I ask the same questions, well, yes, sir. I ask the same questions. Well, well, maybe I repeat myself from time to time. But if I ask the same questions, then I know I ask the same questions. It's because everyone who answers me is a liar. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> and it, I, again, it's another one of these like. It's true. Like you're just seeing Aaron Weiss on full display here. <laughs> like the the way he delivers these lines, the point of it all, he wants to fix it. I, there's a reason, you know, you could read all of this the way we could read much emo and, and post hardcore lyrics that reference women, you know, like the constant fixation on Amanda that could look pretty bad if mm-hmm. you want to read it that way. But I, I don't think it is. He's just chewing on this thing that impacted him so much. And he mm-hmm. really wants to understand it from every yeah. angle. Again, back to my reading of licking the leaves. And that's what this is. I'm going to keep asking the same questions because, Joel, as you said, when you're in seminary, your answers get questioned. Mm-hmm. That, yeah. That's the whole point of discovery. The, mm-hmm. the older you are, the less you know, in a sense. Or the more mm-hmm. you know that you don't know anything. Mm-hmm. So yeah. different. I'm going to talk about Tol- Tolstoy's confession again. Um, <laughs> Please. I'm not going to leave this alone, guys. <laughs> Good. <laughs> so in that book, uh, Leo Tolstoy is basically asking, what is the meaning of life? He puts it in a lot more words mm-hmm. than that, but that's the core question that he's asking. And, and he goes, and there's a whole section where he talks about seeking out answers in all the natural sciences, and the answer they give him is basically, you know, you're a bunch of atoms that have somehow come together in a in an interesting way, and to stay a bit longer. In a yeah, sense. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> and then he goes and he says, "Well, that's not satisfying." They basically confirm that life <laughs> is meaningless. Uh, so let's try again. So he goes and, and talks to philosophers, going, you know. From, from physics now to metaphysics, and the answer he gets from them is just a tautology that the meaning of life is the meaning of life. He's like, well, that's useless. Like, I can't do anything with that either. Um, and, and so through a long process, he comes to that faith is actually the only thing that could possibly give meaning. And that sounds like a pat answer, but when you read the book, it, it does not, you do not arrive at that through a, through a pat sort of like nice statement. Right. And, and when he comes to the point of faith and he's like, all right, well, what faith is going to, to clarify the meaning of life for me? And so now I want to read a quote because I feel like this is closer to the heart of where Aaron is in this album 
of questioning yeah. from a directly a faith perspective. So this is Tolstoy. I was now ready to accept any faith, if only it did not demand of me a direct denial of reason, which would be a falsehood. And I studied Buddhism and Mohammedism from books. And most of all, I studied Christianity, both from books and from the people around me. Naturally, I first of all turned to the Orthodox of my circle, to people who were learned, to church theologians, monks, to theologians of the newest shade, and even to evangelicals who profess salvation by belief in the redemption. And I seized on these believers and questioned them as to their beliefs and their understanding of the meaning of life. But though I made all possible concessions and avoided all disputes, I could not accept the faith of these people. I saw that what they gave out as their faith did not explain the meaning of life, but obscured it, and that they themselves affirmed their belief not to answer that question of life which brought me to faith, but for some other aims alien to me. Hmm. Wow. Mm. Yeah, that fits. That fits hand in glove with this pre-chorus in a way. Yeah. So in the overview episode, I talked sort of shamelessly about my dissertation. Yeah. 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 <laughs> in the interest of in the interest of making the podcast lighter and more accessible to everybody, <laughs> um, I'll reference that again. <laughs> but I talked about the idea of mysticism, right? And that um, you know the. The mystic, according to my dissertation, which was about this uh, relatively obscure German theologian named Ernst Trolch, um, the mystic is the person that um, that sort of uh, is in conflict with the institutional form of Christianity. And the institutional form doesn't have to mean the Catholic Church, right? It's any sort of any form of Christianity that claims to be the orthodox form of Christianity, to be upholding the tradition from Jesus Christ himself to today, right? There are plenty of churches that claim that and denominations and what what have you. Um, And that the conflict of the mystic, right, is usually due to their interpretation of what the, what Trulch calls the religious idea of Christianity is, or the essence of Christianity. You know, Nick, you talked about that idea of the kaleidoscope, uh, sort of getting us closer to the truth. Uh, Trulch actually, um, he doesn't use a metaphor of the kaleidoscope, but his idea of what the essence of Christianity is, is essentially that. If you want to know what the essence of Christianity is, you have to take the entire sweep of the his, all historical iterations of Christianity in their totality. If you can do that, then you have grasped the essence of Christianity. Guess what? No one can do that, right? That I mean, his point is that like this is impossible. All we can do is approximate that as best as we can, right? And that gets us closer to something like the essence of Christianity. Yeah. Yes. And so then as we are approximating that and in search of that, um, that more authentic, that more human, right? As Tolstoy is talking about something that addresses the question of what is the meaning of life? Why are we here? Right. That, that, um, uh, uh, that, that search is inevitably going to lead to conflict with the institutional forms of Christianity. Yes. Right. And so when he, so I think that this is a, a kind of a straightforward example of what I was saying in the, in the, overview episode of Aaron as a kind of mystic, right? He's just asking questions, right? He's asking questions and he keeps asking the same questions because, hey, sir, 
you're not telling me the truth, right? You're you're spoon feeding me a bunch of BS. Yeah. And I I'm calling it, I'm calling yep. you on it. Like what you're saying is religious platitudes. I mean, typically I'm assuming that that's a lot of what he would get in response to the questions he's asking, right? Is a right. bunch of like meaningless platitudes. And uh, you know, I I'm gonna keep pressing this. I'm not gonna let it go. Right. It's interesting. I like uh, I like the Tolstoy reference because I think I can't remember if it was Dostoevsky or Tolstoy, but um, the sociologist Max Weber, mm-hmm. who was a contemporary of Trulch's, um, and Trulch actually gets his typology of of the church from or of Christianity from mm-hmm. Weber. But Weber uses either Tolstoy or Dostoevsky, I can't remember, as a kind of paradigmatic example of a kind of a type mm-hmm. of mystic that he's like talking about. In his basically, uh, I think you know the type of mystic who is really only concerned with their individual uh, uh, search for God and meaning, and so yeah. that kind mm, of fits with with Tolstoy actually, um, you know, and is not really concerned with the rest of of the world. Uh, right, is is really more concerned with their you know. I, I I mean that in some ways that maybe doesn't fit quite with with Tolstoy, but anyway, yeah, that's. Um, it's yeah. interesting. interesting. Well, it, it sounds like, and I have not read a confession, so I don't know, but from Stephen, your fantastic explanations thus far, it sounds like that was the journey he was on. And then yes, towards the right. end, he realized, mm-hmm. ah, I'm actually impacting all these other people. Right. So it's yeah. like, yeah. you have this complete 180. Yeah. Let's talk about this last chorus. It comes back around to the opening same couple of lines, and then it mm-hmm. it really shifts hard. Two no. songs in a row where we've had uh, actually repeated choruses, just from a musical standpoint. Okay, so she's like a hot cloth on a fevered head, and like a needle she leads me while I follow like thread. But you untied me. Didn't you untie me, Lord? And now I haven't even thought about killing myself in almost five months. Yeah. I I really appreciate how when they do this song live, Aaron changes the amount Mm -hmm. of time. Yes. There. Sometimes it's more. I've also heard it less, (laughs) you know, like. Because mm, yeah. he's he's still struggling at times. Of course, yeah. Well, yeah. the thing about the five months, as you experience it on this album, and it's even emphasized by the way that that happens in live performances, is that it is chillingly specific. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Something yeah, almost yeah. Almost five months, right? It's like he knows the, the exact day. He's just not telling us. Thought, yeah. Yeah. Aren't you unbearably sad when you hear that mm-hmm. one? Um. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. I mean, so I think that, I mean, uh, that, that line is obviously pretty straightforward and we, we have the first two lines, but this middle line, right. But you untied me. Didn't you untie me, Lord? That, yeah. I'm, I'm wondering what you all make of that. Well, 
just because I was literally spending the last five minutes rewrapping cables because I was annoyed with how they weren't working. I'm thinking it's like, didn't you provide me the clarity that I've been seeking for mm-hmm. that? That certainty mm. that I felt that I had, didn't that come from you? That's mm. how I've always read that. But then again, back to the needing more grace than he thought. No, 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 that wasn't God. That wasn't Christ providing you that clarity. That was your own hubris thinking you figured it out. Um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting if we, again, I think that this fits with the the mystic yeah. kind of uh, theme in that um, if the she is the church and if the church has tied yeah. him, uh, you know, like as as he's tied up in the uh, in the first chorus, mm-hmm. and then it's God that has untied untied him, right? That's, yep. I mean, to me, you could read that as like, you know, my ex- my experience of you, my search yeah. for you, has led to this untying. I am unbound by yeah, I like the that. church. I'm unbound by the tradition. Uh, the institution has bound me and my mystical revelation, right? My, my sinking to the bottom of the sea and discovering the pearl, right? That has untied mm. me. Mm. And now because of that, there's something yeah. positive, right? I haven't thought about yeah. killing myself in five months. Yeah. Jesus clearly saw his own mission as an expression of what Isaiah talks about. Mm-hmm. You know, in I think in the Gospel of Luke, he he shows up for the daily synagogue reading and it happens to be this passage from Isaiah. Um, so so Jesus says, you know, he's come uh, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, you know, and he's he's come to uh, open blind eyes and and to make the lame walk and and all this and and so then he rolls up the scroll, stands up, and says, "Today this has been fulfilled in your hearing." And they try to go throw him off a cliff and drown him in the ocean. Like that's that's his community's response to him reading this and saying that that he's going to fulfill all this. So if you have yeah. that as a backdrop, that Jesus is thinking in terms of Isaiah as a blueprint for his own mission, including all the suffering servant passages that, that we talked about in the last episode, mm-hmm. I just want to read this one verse, uh, Isaiah 58, 6. This is the New International Version. Um, is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Mm. And so thinking of this in the context yeah. of, um, of a community that would make him feel bound up, and then to see somehow in this individual connection to the Lord that, that the mission here is, is to untie the cords that bind him. Yeah. Um, and that the, that the kind of fasting that he's been called to by all these people around him somehow is different than that. It's, it's almost like, you know, where, where the Lord says several times, I think in across the span of the prophets in the Hebrew Bible that, you know, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. There's something greater than what you think is supposed to be going on here. And in this case, it's, it's Mm -hmm. untying the cords of the yoke to set the oppressed free. 
So that that yeah. comes to mind as the, as a reasonable read of this image. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. about how awesome this coda is jesus yes <laughs> it is so cool uh, oh my gosh so remember well and it's about a minute of of outro mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah like it's a pretty extended amount yeah. of time which is really fun yeah yeah so remember what feels like ages ago at the beginning of the song i talked about that half step mm-hmm. descent from the the third to the second scale degree in the key of E minor. Here in the coda, we get the other kind of half-step descent that's available in this key. Mm-hmm. We get E, C, down to B natural, and then down to E an octave below. And so now we have from the, the sixth down to the fifth scale degree. It's it's just half-steps, but but this has such a heavier weight to it. It doesn't it oh, doesn't yeah. feel like you're just kind of coming back around to the beginning to repeat the riff. No, this is dragging you down. And we've not yes. had anything like this yet on the album and certainly not yet in this song. It is a, it is a novel, new sound, which, which draws your attention to yeah. it and makes you feel the full weight of what's going on musically. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, um, it's an incredible sound. Uh, it's uh, just the whole the whole mix of it, right? The tone of the guitar, uh, everything is just it's perfect. It's heavy. Um, yeah, it's it's dark it's, in a yeah. way that we again the the novelty is not just in this album, but it's dark in a way. A to B Life is a dark album, but this is dark in a different mm-hmm. way. It, it provides it's it's playing in a different space, yeah. and then the release into leaf is yeah (laughs) well yeah and i I was gonna say you know we mentioned on the last album right these choices right yeah this this track like doesn't intuitively end this way no right for like anyone else anybody just like trying to write this song like this this is not necessarily how this track ends right it's it's such a specific choice right to to do this yep. um at the end of this track because yeah it doesn't sound anything like any other part of this song any other part of this record so far um yeah it's really uh in some ways it kind of it maybe foreshadows some of the heaviness that is coming like on my accident fair like the chorus of that song is pretty yeah. heavy yeah. um you know so in some ways, I think it foreshadows some of those later yeah. moments. Yeah. Um, but up until this point, there's been nothing. And yeah, it's like, it's so interesting. These like very intentional, specific choice, songwriting mm-hmm. choices um, that are are doing yeah. something. I mean, like Stephen, like you said, on the at the end of January 1979, it kind of gives you space to reflect. 
Yes. And here, I don't know if it's space to reflect or if it's like, I mean, it feels like it's revving you up. For I was, yeah, it's driving us towards yeah. something. But but then again, we get that release into kind of space openness in really the next two tracks. Well, in any, even if you don't think of it as being reflective, it's still a kind of musical yeah. commentary on the last line. I mean, you have to remember, yes. even though mm-hmm. we've, we've kind of teased these themes out in places, in the last season, we talked a little bit in Silencer, the last episode, mm-hmm. there's these literary references to people that have some mention or, or actual connection to suicide. This is mm-hmm. the first time in Me Without You's catalog that that has actually been put plain as day in the lyrics. True. Yeah, said explicitly, and, right. And so True. the musical yeah. commentary on that is this intense, dark, heavy sound. Yes. And yet, even though what at least one of the guitars and the bass are doing is pulling down... What the other guitar is doing at the same time Starts on an E, the same tonic pitch that the other stuff is using to pull down, and then comes up again. Raises a little bit higher the next time. Goes back to that, and then the last time that guitar says something is... And it's raising higher and higher and higher until this last thing is is an E and then a D almost an octave above down to a C mm. and then back down to the E again. So wow. it's reaching to try to like get out of that loop and it comes really close and then it doesn't quite, but, but there is this rising gesture that's happening almost parallel to mm. uh, no lower place to fall in the last song where like mm-hmm. the lyrics are, are going yeah. downward, but the sound of it is going up. Now here we have this pulling down from most of the band. Well, one voice is rising higher and higher. And of course, then the next song is called Leaf and we're almost coming right back to the top of the tree that we left at the beginning of this song. And yeah. so, right. so we have this pulling out in both directions and somehow we need to land where we can start talking about being up in the tree again. And so here we have it in the music itself. Hey folks, just wanted to highlight that for those of you in the States who may be struggling with your own mental health, be sure to reach out for help when you need it. You can do this on a national level by dialing 988 for the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Wanted to make sure we highlighted that after the explicit mention of suicide in this episode, as it's something many of us have struggled with and we want to make sure resources are available for you. On to lighter things, be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts as well as Spotify, since this is going to be a great way to help us grow the podcast and get to more listeners. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook, at UsWithoutThemPod, and join our Facebook group, Us Without Them Podcast, to keep the conversation going with other listeners. You can also follow us on Twitter, at UsWithoutThem, and be sure to share your favorite episodes on your favorite platforms. If you have any comments, questions, concerns, want to tell us we're full of it, be sure to email us at uswithoutthempod at gmail.com. You can also give us a call at 405-FOXES-05. That's 405-369-3705. 
can also visit our website, uswithoutthempod.com, where we'll have episode descriptions, blog posts, and show notes that include links to other music that we reference, as well as books, articles, things like that that we mention on each episode. Bye, and see you next time.